Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Cattlecast. I can't believe we've had nearly 30 editions and it's been over two years since we started. But anyway, back to today. I will be talking about all things Q fever. I have to be honest, this isn't a disease I know much about or have ever tested for. So over to you. My name is Renzo Di Florio. Well, I've been a farm vet in the UK since 2012. I actually moved to the UK in 2009 and uh, I started working in the farming industry, but I was a dedicated farm vet since 2012. I did a lot of work uh, around infectious disease. I started as many other vets coming from abroad, TB testing a lot of cattle. And that actually, I used that part of my career to actually understand the UK farming industry, understanding also the UK management uh, in, in dairy farms and uh, farms in, uh, in general. It was a very interesting exercise. It was very interesting for me and it led me to have a very big interest around infectious disease. And uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, I spent most of my time working in, uh, in Leicestershire and I was very fortunate to work around infectious disease a lot. And I was very fortunate when I decided in 2022, for only five months ago, to move away from clinical work, wanting a, a bit of an easier life, not being outside in, in this cold weather, and I decided to move into the industry and working for uh, SIVA and uh, fortunate enough to start working in the, this project around uh, Q fever which is an infectious disease very well known in Europe, but uh, probably underestimated here in the UK. No, it's really interesting seeing that um, other route round being maybe TB focused and actually working on the dairy farms to, to see sort of the internal workings of it. I think you'll definitely get a different angle yeah. from there. Um, and you said you were now working for SIVA. So is the, the Q fever the top topic for SIVA at the moment? Well, at the moment we are doing a very hard work in trying to increase awareness around Q fever. In Europe, France, Spain, Italy, the Q fever is a very well known subject for vets. And here in UK seems to be uh, less of a problem, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. If we look at prevalence of Q fever in Europe and in the UK, we actually have the same sort of prevalence. The studies that have been done here in UK in 2017 is the most comprehensive around endemic disease here in the UK, show that there is a testing seroantibody in the bull tank milk, so nearly 80% of the, the farms were seropositive. And if we look at the actual antigen in the bull tank milk, 29% of bull tank milk were positive. So there, there is active Q fever on farms. And these are very similar to the data that we find uh, in, uh, in Europe. So we are trying to increase awareness. And also we are trying to help vets to understand and investigate the disease, because this is the real challenge for vets, is the diagnostic side. So as a vet, I have to admit, I've never um, diagnosed it or even tested for it. So what sort of signs or what risks would be deemed as at risk to then go forward into testing them? Historically, Q fever has been linked to abortion. And, and this is one of the main manifestations of Q fever. It's quite interesting and very important to understand that Q fever is a, a disease can uh, cause abortion at any stage of pregnancy. So it's not only late pregnancy, so it's not only fully formed calf, but actually you can lose the pregnancy even just the 40, 50 days. In fact, one of the manifestations could be a late return to heat of cows that uh, lose pregnancy. But generally speaking, 
pregnancy loss within the whole pregnancy of the cow, this is a, a typical manifestation of, uh, of Q fever. So never underestimate not only the late abortion, but also the abortion within the whole pregnancy and also still birth. Stillbirth is another manifestation of Q fever and sometimes underestimated, in, especially in dairy farms, where stillbirth sometimes is considered just a kind of physiological loss sometimes. So proper recording of abortion, pregnancy loss and stillbirth may start leading to that to investigate Q fever. But other than that, we also know that Q fever can actually impact fertility of the cows. Uh, if we look at some studies outside the UK, uh, there has been a study in Italy where they have taken biopsy from the uterus of cows that were repeat breeders. Some of these cows, they actually found, they saw the actual bacteria. It's an intracellular bacteria. And so there is a sort of first time that there was that link between the repeat breeding and the presence of the coxella in the uterus. So generally speaking, also fertility issues, calving to conception, longer calving to uh, conception interval, poor uh, conception rate at first service, if there are unexplained, because that's very important. So first of all, QFIO won't be at top of our differential diagnosis. But if we have looked into nutrition, we have looked into transition, and we've looked into other infectious diseases, and we, we know that the farm is actually controlling these factors, then probably we want to start looking into QFIO as well, investigate the disease stages of the, of the farm. Um, so you say that, that it is a bacteria and I'm guessing it affects <coughs> beef and dairy. It's just we often know the data around dairy fertility a lot more. Um, do we know yet how it's transferred between cows? Uh, yes, j- just a note on what you just said. Q fever is a, a disease of ruminants. It's actually uh, historically there has been big outbreak in the Netherlands between 2007 and 2010 with 400 cases in human. And they were all linked, well, at least the government in in the Netherlands, they linked it to uh, dairy goats. So high stock density of dairy goats. And there was a a specific control program directed to goats. So going back to your question, how animals are infected. So the main route of infection is inhalation of aerosols or dust particles contaminated with bacteria, which leads me to an important characteristic of this disease is an environmental disease. It stays in the environment for a very long time. And it can also fly, especially in a very in the proper environmental condition, like windy and dry, it can fly up to 11 miles. So it can actually spread from one farm to another through the wind. But the main route of uh, transmission is inhalation of aerosols and dust particles. And because cows, they, the vast majority of bacteria are shed at time of calving. That is the time where vets and farmers, they can get exposed to the disease. And if we don't clean properly, we don't uh, remove promptly the aborted calf or the birth fluids and the birth material that can contaminate the environment and expose other cows to the bacteria. Uh, Just again, on that note, this is a disease, as we said, it is transmitted to, to human is a zoonosis, and is especially a risk for vets and farmers. They have done a study in France where they looked into seroprevalence in vets, in cattle farmers, and general population. 80% of vets at some point of their life were exposed to Q fever. 50% of cattle farmers were exposed to Q fever. Looking at the general population, non-vets, non-farmer, the percentage was around 10%. Is it zoonosis? 
but it's been around for many years. We know Coxiel has been around since 1937 when first was discovered in Australia and is mainly a zoonosis for uh, professionals like vets and farmers. So staying on the zoonotic theme and with obviously in the cows it being mainly around fertility and abortion, is that the risk then of pregnant vets dealing with it or are we still unaware of what the risks are? Uh, th- this is a very good question. Yes, Q fever in human is 60% of the people infected are asymptomatic. 40% they have flu-like symptoms, but there is a 2% of cases where people can get chronic diseases like endocarditis and also pregnant women are at risk of abortion or early birth. Uh, quite an important one for any pregnant working vets out there to, I guess, yes. get to test some of their herds. How would we go about the diagnosis? We've hinted at maybe what herds might be at risk if we've got fertility problems that we've looked into some of the maybe more common options. But then how can we diagnose to see if Q fever is there? So we have two situations. One is the situation where we have unexplained high rate of abortions. And in that case, the best thing to do is to test either the calf, the aborted calf or the dam. Now, in the UK, APHA will test routinely for Q fever in aborted fetuses. The slight problem we have is that they normally test with a smear test, which is they look under the microscope, and this is not a very sensitive test. So the best, the gold standard is a PCR. And what we try to do now is to actually test the dam with a vaginal swab or even better endocervical swab and send it to the lab for a a PCR testing. Uh, This type of test can be done the earlier the better, but even at seven days after the abortion. So if you have routine visits fortnightly and you have a calf, a cow that has aborted three days before, you can still have the chance to take a vaginal swab and send it for, uh, for PCR. This is in the case you want to test aborted cows. In the case you want, you have fertility issues and you have issues that you cannot explain in your farm and you want to look at the disease status, probably the best approach is to start with a PCR on the bull tank milk. And as a SIVA, we are actually helping vets and farmers because there are no labs here in UK offering PCR in the milk now. We have an FDA card. So SIVA has developed an FDA card that we, we can use to put some milk on. It will dry the milk. Vets can send it to France and they can test it in, in France. So it's the best way to go is to test bulk tank milk PCR until we have lab doing the the test in UK at the moment we can send it to to France with a, a FDA card now if we have positive on the FDA card we know that we have active Q fever uh, on the farm that doesn't mean that the coxiella is actually involved into the problem of the farm and the best way to go at, at this stage is to look into several prevalence which is a bit of a difficult area And EFSA protocol and guidelines is to test six animals, problematic cows. And if more than 50% of these cows are positive, you probably are facing with a high seroprevalence in the herd. Uh, It's a bit of a a low number, six, (laughs) but the problem is that like with other infectious disease, if you have infected animals that are actually shedding and you check for uh, antibody, Some data from outside the UK showed that those cows may also be negative. So you have seronegative shedding cows, like 
sometimes with Yonis, for example. So it's difficult to really know the true prevalence of the disease in the farm. So protocol from EFSA and generally speaking, what the protocol we suggest is do the bull tank meal test PCR. If it's positive, look into six problematic cows and look at the seroprevalence in these problematic cows. And on the problematic cows, would that be on a swab basis as well? Do, do the blood, uh, looking for antibody and looking for seroprevalence. Yeah, looking if you have a high level of antibody, if the animals have been uh, exposed at some point of their life to Q fever. And would that, again, be close to calving then the better responses we're likely to get or don't we yet no it can be as far as you test cows that have been problematic either because they aborted in previous six six months for example or you struggle to get them in calf these are all animals they are good candidates for a a serological test and looking if they have developed antibody against coxiella so that's a great one so virtually any stage of the lactation as long as they've had an event in the last six months the more the better if you want to test 10, 15, 20, the more the better to have a true prevalence of the disease in the herd. Uh, the problem with the serology is that it gives us some information on if the cow has been exposed, but it doesn't tell us if the cow is in a, at the moment shedding. If we have the bull tank meal positive, it means that at least one cow is shedding high load of uh, bacteria through the milk. So we can find it in the bull tank milk. Okay, so I guess then if we found a positive herd and we think that they've got a high prevalence, if we've taken six of those and three of them come back positive, what's the next step into trying to control this disease? So we know that we have active Q fever. We know we have high seroprevalence. All the other aspects of the farm management are under control. So nutrition is good. Uh, transition is good. That's, that's a key part of uh, understanding the disease. It's a very subtle disease. It doesn't make a lot of noise, uh, but sometimes it takes time before you see, you know, the abortions and you see all the problems. So next step is, you know, that you have active Q fever on farm. First of all, increase biosecurity, especially at calving time. First of all, to make, to reduce the zoonotic risk. So at calving time, make sure that you, the farmers uh, dispose of uh, aborted calves and placenta and clean properly the birth fluids, and this will minimize the environmental contamination, which, as I said before, it's one of the key aspects of the disease, the environmental contamination. So what we want to do is minimizing the challenging from the environment. And to do that, best thing is uh, hygiene at calving. And the other option is vaccination. So we can vaccinate only heifers, which most of the time are seronegative, but we can also vaccinate cows, infected cows, and cows that are not infected. That's because with the vaccination, we reduce the shedding from infected cows. So we, again, reduce the environmental contamination from these cows. At the same time, we increase immunity in those cows that are not infected and in the heifers, which is the group you really want to protect, the heifers. Because uh, studies from Europe have shown that heifers normally are seronegative, so these are the group of animals you want to protect. So once you have the vaccination established, cows that are infected and vaccinated, they will have 30%, show, some study talk about 30% uh, less risk of abortion. The cows and heifers that are not infected and vaccinated, they 
uh, increase immunity have more chances not to get uh, clinical disease, so abortion and fertility issues. Um, so you say then about getting the vaccine up and going, is it a live or a dead vaccine? And what are the protocols that you bring in to make that work? So it's a, a dead vaccine and is a vaccine that is normal protocol. It is given two injections uh, as a primary course, three weeks apart, and then there is the annual booster. Uh, one important aspects is the vaccine is not 100% protective. As I said, it minimizes the shedding from the infected cows and increases the immunity in non-infected cows. So it takes a lot of time, probably I would say between three and five years commitment to start seeing results in the vaccination. It's a long commitment. As I said, it's a subtle disease and it takes long for you to have that sort of green line of non-infected animals coming into the herd and culling and get rid of those animals that are infected and although vaccinated they still can shed even if in a lower amount so it, it takes the, the real challenge with the vaccine and the real top thing to understand is that it needs a long-time commitment together with the biosecurity of course um yeah staying on vaccine again i guess if you had a herd that always presented in the same way such as late abortions or poor early conception, um, then could you alter your vaccine so to give it instead of just annually every February, say you give it to cows when they get dried off or are most people just doing it as an annual approach? There are some people vaccinating only a dry off where you have to repeat annually the the vaccine. Some farms, they vaccinate only the heifers, but this is very difficult to then follow on the vaccination of these animals when they are into the herd, into the main herd. So the best protocol is to vaccinate the whole herd once and then carry on vaccinating regularly without splitting in different groups. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You also mentioned, of course, the importance of general biosecurity and hygiene. I guess that's a win-win because it can affect a lot of other infectious diseases as well. That's exactly one of the point of why I stress out that much about you know, biocontainment is not only Q fever. We know if we have a very high gene at calving time, we can actually control other infectious disease. And that's a key point, yeah. And I guess trying to think of some of the uh, financial or economic sides of it, then the whole biosecurity, because hopefully that would have massive impact on maybe yonis and other you know, yeah. we're saying more about TB and salmonella um, being spread in similar ways. Do you think there's a good return on investment from the vaccine if it's a, such a subtle disease and we need to take, you know, three to five years to get there? Or is it such a difficult thing to get ahead of? We have to start vaccinating early. The key for vets and farmer is to really understand the impact of Q fever on the performance and once we, as I said, we ruled out all other reasons why cows may not perform properly, then the return of investment is very easy to have because you will have, you know, decreasing in abortion, decreasing in uh, pregnancy losses, and, and in generally increasing in fertility. The real challenge is not the return of investment, the real challenge is understanding the real impact of Q fever on farms. So diagnostic and looking at some KPI which SIVA is trying to now develop up where you can actually put all the different uh, KPIs related to uh, Q fever and looking into the performance over the uh, three, five years during the vaccination. 
That was really helpful as to where to go about with these problem herds. It is always a challenging one, particularly when nutrition has a big part to play, how we can make sure that stays being well controlled. Um, But I think that was a really insightful introduction to Q fever. I had a lot of interest from nutritionists. This is a very typical situation. The nutritionist is ticking all the boxes and is left with nothing. So they were so interested in seeing because of the nature of the disease and the presentation of the disease, often I, I forgot to mention that uh, another clinical manifestation of Q fever could be metritis, so a higher, higher level of uh, metritis and endometritis, which most of the time we look at nutrition of the cows, we look at the transition, something is wrong with the energy. So all the boxes are ticked and there is nothing left. So we're very interested in, in seeing how Q fever impacts the, this part of the management. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, vets working alongside nutritionists is increasing and is the way forward. So Absolutely. it's interesting that you saw that interest from the nutritionists at Total Dairy there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, those working relationship with other professionals like you know, food trimmers and food uh, about other areas of, of veterinary work is absolutely essential particularly on these quite difficult topics where it is so multifactorial. But for vets to bear in mind that Q fever might have a part to play in it in these difficult herds where we think we've ticked the other boxes. Thank you for that. I definitely filled up some knowledge holes there and definitely know a lot more about Q fever than when I started. So thank you for that. As ever, if you've got some knowledge holes of your own or just want to learn something new, then please let us know any topics you'd like covered on our Cattlecast. You can contact us in any way, emails, phone calls or social media. If you've got any ideas for our Cattlecast, please let us know. So until next time, thank you and goodbye.